Plundergrounds, Plundergrounds, welcome back to a brand new show. Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon delve, science fiction, watch yourselves. Yo, Ray, super stoked to hear you back on the mic, man. Really enjoyed your breakdown of the Black Sword hack. I've been thinking a lot about action economy lately because I'm building a character for a Pathfinder 1 game that I'm playing in, and it's a class that deals with a lot of the fiddly bits of the Pathfinder action economy. So let me see if I can get this breakdown right. On your turn, every class can take a standard or a move action, or they could trade that in to take a full round action and a five-foot step. Five-foot step really isn't an action, but if you do take a five-foot footstep you can't also then take a move action some classes give you access to swift actions which are neither a standard a move or a full round action they're their own action there are also things called immediate actions that you can take uh on someone else's turn but if you take an immediate action on someone else's turn then you can't spend a swift action on your own turn <laughs> i think i got that man anyway great to have you back peace out <laughs> <laughs> exactly, Joe. Exactly. Um, I've played a lot of fifth edition in recent years. And, uh, you know, I feel like the action economy in fifth edition is pretty good. Uh, you got the reaction, you got the bonus action, the main action. And within the main action, you've got move actions and attack actions. And um, it all seems to make pretty good sense. There are obviously like class abilities and feats that give you extra actions or allow you to do things um, in like a bonus action that normally would take a normal action, that kind of stuff. And it all, and it all has kind of an elegance to it in a way that, uh, if you like system mastery and you like fiddling with all that stuff, or you want to build a character around exploiting as much of the turn as possible, you know, being able to do as many things in a turn as you can, that there's a certain elegance to it, but it does get a little crazy. It's a little crazy. I've been, I've been playing a lot of old school essentials over the last three years. And I know that's just BX. Some people don't like to say OSE because it's become almost uncomfortably the most popular kid on the block um, in terms of, uh, at least with uh, old school style gamers, I think. And, uh, uh, you know, we I give Gavin all the credit in the world for creating a very clean and well laid out version of uh, Moldvay and Cook's basic expert, but in the end, I think we have to admit that the classic version of OSE is the is the creation of Moldvay and Cook, and I don't think Gavin would argue with that. Um, uh, what's What's great about OSE and why I'll say OSE is because it put it in a format that is extremely useful and has given that rule set new life. Um, and we've also lately been playing old school advanced, and I think I like old school advanced quite a bit. Um, I, I'm not, a couple of the classes are a bit over the top. I don't allow right now, I don't allow the Underdark classes. I think the Drow is underpowered, and I think the, um, I think it's the Durgar is uh, crazy good. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's not so much about that as really they don't fit into my campaign world. And so I have the easy excuse of saying, well, they don't really fit, so we're not going to use those. Um, but 
in the end, everybody has fun playing the class they play. It doesn't really matter if one is that much better than the other. Uh, but we've been playing old school advanced a lot and, uh, for over three years now, and I've run it probably more than half of that time, probably two thirds of that time, I've been the GM. And uh, one of my one of Ray's rules, if you will, is this kind of love love the one you're with. Um, I always think of it as the song, right? Uh, love the one you're with. Just to put it in your head for the rest of the day. And uh, you know the the mantra of love the one you're with is to not constantly be dreaming about a better system, but like to work with the system you have to, to understand it and make it sing, right? Um, without changing it too much. So I wanna talk a little bit about old school essentials. And, and the reason I played Joe's call up front is because one of the things we're gonna talk about has to do with the combat sequence, which is, is uh, essentially um, related to action economy and old school essentials. There's no such thing really as an action economy in old school essentials. Um, you just get your turn and there's certain things you can do on your turn, but it's not really quite broken. It's not uh, as granular uh, as uh, AD and D. I'm not sure I ever use that term correctly. I, I always can't, I always get confused about which way it goes. So when I see something's not as granular, I tend to mean um, it's not as like fine grained, but what I, th I think it goes the other way when something's granular, it means it's, it's sort of coarse, right? Not, not fine grained. No, at any rate, um, they are, they have, they operate at different levels of specificity. So, um, uh, so where, where, what am I getting to? Well, there haven't played OSC for a long time. I'm very comfortable with a lot of the system and think it's great. Um, there are two things that I continue to struggle with. One of them is skill checks and the other is the combat sequence. And I've tried different things, uh, but let me, let me run through them independently. First of all, the skill checks. There are three different ways to do skill checks. There, uh, on the classes of the game, there are both X in six chances and percentile chances. So uh, to hear a noise, you might have a two in six chance or to break down doors, you might have a, a four in six chance. That was actually based on abilities, not on your class. Um, and then there's also... Uh, percentage chances. Uh, so like the thief especially has percentage chances and some of the other classes in, in advanced have percentage chances as well to do things. They're generally related to the thief skills, uh, but uh, not always. And so uh, I think a uh, third level thieves hide in shadows might be 30%, right? I, I, I've probably gotten that wrong, but let's assume I'm right. And that means they have to roll 30 or under on a, on a D100. Okay. Uh, so then the book says, if you want to make a skill check, and, uh, and I remember if it says this, but it means it, I'm sure, which is that if there's, if you want to make a skill check, that's not already, that is not already prescribed by a character sheet or by a character class, then you just roll, um, uh, roll under skill with a D20. Okay, great. Now, uh, this is an interesting change from advanced to classic because advanced just stands on that and just says, oh, you make skill checks with a D20 roll under, um, uh, classic said you can do it however you want to do it. Um, you can use a roll under, you can use an X and six chance. You can use a percentile, whatever you feel comfortable with. Sorry, needed a sip of coffee there. And, um, uh, so the problem, here's the problem I have. Um, I go in the game, it works like this. It gets a little awkward and a little process heavy. Um, something happens and I feel like it's dramatic and sort of it, 
it, you know, you get that feeling that there ought to be a role there. Right. Um, and so the first thing is I check myself and say, do I really want to call for a role? Sometimes I'll just say, okay, that happens because I don't really have anything planned. If it fails, that would be interesting or, you know, in a moment's thought, I can't think of anything. And, and then I, sometimes I think, well, you know, that character should be able to do that. It's really not a tricky situation. Just let them do it. Okay. But let's say we decided it needs a role. Okay. So then we go to the role. And um, if it's in that gray area, like where I can't remember if it's on somebody's character sheet, you know, I'll, uh, if I know it's on their character sheet, I'll say, roll your, you know, hide in shadows or hear noise or whatever. But if I'm not sure, I'll say, now, does your class have something, you know, specific for this uh, type of skill role? And if it does, I let them roll that. And if it doesn't, uh, then um, my, uh, what I've been trying to do is go with the book and say, okay, then roll under your stat, your relevant stat. But here's where I don't, here's where I struggle with that. Um, that role is easier than a lot of the prescribed skill roles for a class. Meaning, let's say you're a first level character with a good dexterity. Uh, let's make it a 13, okay? 13 or 14, somewhere in that neighborhood. Well, we've got to be specific. Let's make it 14. You're, you got a dex of 14, okay? But you're a I don't know, you're a fighter or a ranger or a, or a magic user for crying out loud. And um, a hide in shadows comes up. Two characters try to do hide in shadows. A thief does it. And I say, okay, roll your hide in shadows. And they've got to roll 30% or under. Okay. That on a D20, that would be six. Num uh, no, that would be uh, right. They get six numbers to succeed. So they got uh, right. There'll be a 30% chance. Six times five is 30. That means they have a 70% chance of failure. Okay. Um, well, straight up, somebody with a 10 dexterity has a 50% chance of failure, and somebody with a 14 only has a, a, a five, six, so five number, 25% chance of failure, right? Because a 14 counts too. Correction, that's a 30% chance of failure. I can't do math. Um, and so if you do the roll under skill, all of a sudden, everybody is better at things than the classes are. Uh, so I don't like that answer. So then I, um, my fallback position is often an X and six is, which is, which I, I kind of like to use the D six a lot, uh, because it is, uh, it is granular. Is that right? I'm going to try to use that the right way because, because it's, because it's not very fine tuned. It's just a very clunky, but easy way to deal with something. So I'll say, okay, give me a D six roll, but I don't want it just to be a roll of, of, um, you know, die of fate. I'll let them add their, sometimes I'll let them add their um, ability score. So like if they have a plus two index, I might say, well, roll, roll a D6 and add your decks. Okay. But when I say that, I have literally caught myself doing this multiple times. I'll ask for that roll. And then in a, a fraction of a second later, before they even pick up the dice, in my head, I'm going, well, what number constitutes success here? You know, I've asked for a roll. I don't even know what the success number is. Um, and so I very quickly name off a number to myself and think, well, a four ought to do it or a five ought to do it. Right. And then I hear the die roll and ask them what they got. And, um, if they get that number or better then they've done that. But then I have this unsettling suspicion that I've made up something that isn't workable. And that's just as bad as the roll under skill, uh, roll under ability. Um, in the sense that it, uh, when I let them add the bonus from their skill, from their ability, it probably makes it quite a bit easier than somebody who's rolling off of their character sheet. So I don't know. Where am I going with all this? My point is I still haven't solved that one for myself, right? Like I need to, I need a better way of, of, 
of doing that, that is something I don't have to think about. I want it to be, you know, intuitive. Um, I want it to be something I feel comfortable with in terms of making classes still feel special. And I want it to be something that is within the spirit of the rules uh, up to a point, right? Like something that I wouldn't want to invent an entirely new, like a D12 systems of doing skills because there's already three skills, uh, three, three skill roles in the game. I don't, I want to use one of those three and I'm not fond of percentages. So it's either going to be um, an X and six or a D20 role probably related to ability somehow. Um, yeah. So I still haven't quite solved that one. Um, I've tried converting everything before into like an X and six. I think my favorite, uh, what I'm looking at right now, that's my favorite is kind of the, the lamentations way of doing things, right? The lamentations of the flame princess where they have that it's an X and six and it kind of advances with your class and it's relevant, relevant to all, um, things, uh, uh, that you could do in that class. So, um, but that means rejiggering, uh, um, where's that word come from? That sounds vaguely wrong. Um, it means reconfiguring, uh, things like the strength role, the, you know, uh, things that are already written down. Right. Uh, so I don't like that. I'm not, I haven't figured that one out yet. I haven't figured out how to love the one I'm with on that, but, uh, I, I can live with it. I'm, I'm living with it. Uh, and I'm, I'm not hating it. I just trying to figure out how to love it. Uh, then the, the next one is the combat sequence. And uh, this is the progression I've gone through. I originally tried to run it exactly as written in the book. And by the way, I like, uh, I like group turns. And by that, I mean modern D&D where everybody rolls initiative and acts in initiative order uh, is the easiest and the cleanest. But it means that everybody's turn is a discrete, like, uh, selfish, if you will, uh, a unit of time where they're doing something and everybody else isn't right. Um, and so that means, especially with larger groups, people start to tune out, check their phones, blah, blah, blah. Um, they don't always stay engaged in the turn and they can get, and that leads to some confusion like, Oh, I didn't realize he, he killed that guy already. Well then I'll do this instead. And, and, um, you know, I don't, I don't like that. I like the group turn. I like, I like things feeling more simultaneous. So I, I like these action phases of the, uh, uh, movement, missile, magic, melee. That's how I remember it. Movement, missile, magic, melee. Those are the, the basic four phases. Uh, there's also like morale and, and retreat and stuff like that, but that's not, that's not, um, they're not as common and, and, uh, they don't always happen. And, and, uh, it's easy to remember where, where to throw those in as needed. So movement, missile, magic, melee. Um, and by the rules, you're supposed to declare um, before, especially casting or fleeing, right? Those are the ones that have special rules about, like if casting's interrupted, you, you lose the spell and fleeing uh, happens at the top. So I used to say, is anybody casting or fleeing? And people would tell me, and then we'd get into the, okay, movement, and everybody would move. And then, uh, you know, we'd roll side initiative, I'm sorry. And then the the side that wins, we'd do movement, and then we'd do missile, and then we'd do melee. And, okay. And then th that begs the question, does one side do everything, and then the other side do everything? Or do you go back and forth? And, you know, like the winning side moves, the losing side moves, the winning side missile fires, the losing side missile fires, um, which is more fluid. Um a little more fluid, <laughs> a little more fluid feeling, not as fluid at the table, maybe mechanically. Uh, so then I, I did a tweak because I didn't like the, um, the idea that uh, if you imagine in the fiction, people standing around one target, like multiple attackers around one target, 
And I didn't like this idea of imagining them taking turns hitting the target, you know, so that if like, um, so imagine you've got two characters on one goblin and they're both attacking that goblin, uh, have moved to attack that goblin, are clearly intending to attack that goblin. The first one takes a swing, gets lots of damage, and the goblin goes down. All right, we go to the second player. That second player now is left with a little bit of feel bad. Either they're swinging at empty air um, because you know their attack is pointless, or they're trying to do something like change the target in the middle of that, which seems unrealistic, but often as a GM, we'd let them do that kind of thing just to maintain the fun. So I made this tweak where I said, okay, uh, damage is applied at the end of phases. So if two people attack a target, you both will attack and tell me your damage. And uh, I'll tell you if the target goes down and we won't know which one of you really dealt the killing blow. Um, or, or sometimes I'll just mix it up and say, you know, say who dealt the killing blow. Maybe the person who did the most damage, right, is, is sometimes how it goes. Um, or if somebody hasn't had a chance to be cool in a while, I'll say, well, how did you, you know, um, all right, your mace takes them down. Like, tell me how it went. Um, but I like that. I like doing the phase. Phases basically happen simultaneously. They're damage in phases. Right. So then more recently, I've tried this thing where I ask everybody what they're doing up front. I said, you know, basically describe your whole turn. I don't want to know just your movement, right? I just want to, I want to know, like, what are you going to do this turn? And one person might say, well, I'm going to stand over here and cast web on that ogre. And another person say, yeah, I'm going to, I've got my bow out. I'm going to shoot the ogre. Um, and I'm not going to move. I'm just going to stay crouched here behind this boulder. And the third character says, yeah, I'm going to run up on the ogre and, and like smash him in the shins with, with my mace. Um, great. Okay. So once I get everybody's declaration, I then in my head order them in the movement missile magic melee sequence and resolve it and say, okay, you know, um, elf, fire your bow. Let's see what you get. Okay. And then I apply that damage because that's in a phase. And then the magic user casts and, and gets web on the guy and okay. And then the fighter runs up and takes a swing. And and how that works well is a couple of reasons. One, uh, if you do movement first, all that gets screwed up because... Uh, the fighter might the fighter character might be at the shins of the ogre before the before the arrow is fired or the web spell is cast, which means now the the elf is essentially firing into melee. I don't know if you apply those rules or not. I don't think the the rules themselves are very clear about whether that constitutes firing firing into melee um, because melee hasn't happened yet. So I think mostly I wouldn't Im implement that rules because I would think the arrow got there first, but then if you're using miniatures or something, the fighter's already standing there. Uh, and then um, the magic user casts web. Okay, well, the web fills a 10-foot area and kind of falls down on everything there. Does it hit the you know fighter? Um, was he there when the, when the web dropped? So I, it, it's better to do it this way. I can kind of describe it in the order that it happened and let people make their roles and we apply things uh, in, in order. And in that case, we, you know, the arrow might do a certain amount of damage or might even kill the ogre, in which case the, the magic user's uh, web spell falls on a dead body and then the fighter runs up and whacks a dead body. Okay, fine. Um, <laughs> but at least the fighter's not standing there when the web spell goes down. Uh, this gets trickier when, uh, when side initiative is tied, right? Cause then I try to make everything simultaneous. Um, it gets trickier when you have things like, um, setting spears against a charge, uh, but it's better than, uh, better than the old way of doing it or better than the more strict way of doing it, playing it out in phases, because <clears throat> it's easier to account for those things when you ask for the declarations up front. Um, and, uh, there was another way it gets confusing and I it slipped right out of the back of my head. 
Anywho, doesn't matter. Um, I'm getting there, right? I'm learning uh, the way I want it to go to make the most fluid in-play experience. And sometimes that causes, the shifting of gears can cause uh, trouble, right? Um, like I feel bad if I confuse everybody saying, no, 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 we're not doing it the way we used to do. I just want to hear your, like, give me your whole action. Tell me, don't just tell me your movement, right? That's something I'm sure I've said in recent months because I've, I used to say, I used to do the opposite. I'd say like, I don't want to know about your attack yet. I just want to know where are you moving, right? We're just in movement right now. Um, and so you can, you know, um, in trying to, in trying to enforce whatever system you've come up with, shifting gears can be problematic, but but in the end, this is all me trying to love the one I'm with. Uh, and I, there's a real joy. I know I I have at different phases in my life, been into different things as far as role-playing games go. Um, there was a huge phase in my life where I had almost no time. My kids were little and I could only play one shots, basically. And so I was really into trying a bunch of, like packing as much action as I could into one session and trying a bunch of different games. Uh, and so I did a lot with games on demand at Gen Con. I would run games there. I played games there. And that was kind of my style, even outside of, of Gen Con, was to get people together and run one shots with different systems. And, uh, there's just still part of me that likes that. Um, but, um, but we're, we're long form gamers now. I am. And my group is we're, we're long form. Um, we do rotating GMs when we run in sessions of nine to 12 sessions per GM. Um, but, but a lot of times we stick with the same system or, you know, we, uh, any rate, uh, or we come back to our systems when it's our turn again. And so as a long form player, you, you know, you play a little differently and that's where I feel like the joy of getting to learn a system so that it's second nature to you so that you can invent monsters, you know, in the blink of an eye and, and ha know um, what relative ACs and like what the claw damage on a big creature is like versus the claw damage on a little creature or something. Um, all that, those scales can get in your head and you can work much more quickly. Um, and that's the joy of loving the one you're with, which is you really get to know them. Um, you really get to know the system and, and be able to run that system at the drop of a hat, right? Like I almost don't need books to run OSC. In fact, I don't know that I need books. I don't open my book hardly ever. Um, the only time the book gets opened is when a player does something and I'll, and I'll ask them, well, how does that spell work? Uh, because I want them to know it, not me, right? <laughs> They're the one casting the spell, but they need to know how, how web works or whatever. Okay. So that's the, that's the end of my ramble. It's been 20 minutes on that. That's probably good enough. Um, maybe more than good enough. I hope that was interesting. I'm not entirely sure it was. We'll get, <laughs> we'll get to the rest of the calls now. Um, and I don't know if I'll, uh, some of these calls I may not play. Uh, sorry, if that doesn't make any sense, if you're not going to hear them, then you won't know if I played them or not. If you, if, uh, I, if you called in and I don't play your call, I'm probably going to just still respond and, and acknowledge you and summarize it. If I, if I think the, you know, I don't want to, um, bore everybody more than I already have. Uh, so, We'll get on. Well, I wish I could cut that whole segment out, but I'm, I'm gorilla podcasting and there's no editing here. So <laughs> here we go. Hey, Ray, it's Cody. Uh, super cool episode, man. I, um, the, the, the four color hex theorem. I don't know what kind of freaking elementary school you're going to where you're learning about theorems, but, um, in my elementary school, we learned about how to count on our fingers and how to not eat crayons. Um, but I'm not calling to pick on you. I'm calling to say I think the hex hex color idea is super duper cool. Um, I think I'm gonna try that. I, I, it's good timing on your part because I'm just putting together a hex crawl campaign. 
um, for this group of folks I run BX for. So uh, I'm going to give that a go. Also, I was wondering, you said um, two of your colors were wondrous and weird. And I'm just trying to, like, figure out what the difference would be. Is wondrous, like, benevolent and weird is kind of antagonistic? Or um, what's the connotation here? What's the, you know, I'm just trying to figure it out. Anyway, uh, talk to you later. Right, Cody. So first of all, I'm I'm guessing I ran across that idea uh, in I think I ran across it in a geometry class in fifth in fifth grade. I had a really interesting fifth grade teacher who <clears throat> uh, was still into like diagramming sentences and uh, talked about a lot of interesting things. And I, I learned a lot from that guy. Um, and I think still some of my thinking is is maybe he already thought the way I did, or I thought the way he did, or maybe he taught me to think a certain way, but we played with dry cells, you know, and, and did electrical projects. And it was just very like hands-on and kind of practical and interesting. And I believe that's where I got that, uh, was exposed to that four color theorem, but I won't swear that it didn't also, maybe it came from one of the childcraft encyclopedias, which I used to read a lot. Yeah. I was a nerdy kid. I would sit down and read encyclopedias, but, but childcraft had, uh, they weren't really encyclopedias. I mean, I'd read the world book, but uh, man, encyclopedias, a thing of the past, right? Everybody guess just the equivalent is Wikipedia or something these days, but, uh, you know, I'm falling down the rabbit hole in a, in an internet search, but, um, Childcraft used to have these annuals, these yearbooks. Um, so every year they'd put out one and, and they would have themes. One, one was kind of like words and, and, uh, one was math and, uh, they were wonderful. They had little games in them. They had cool little stories. And I, I remember learning a lot from those. And I actually, <clears throat> I'm so sorry. <clears throat> um, went on eBay the other day and ordered one because I, it's the one that has the telling of Beowulf and Gilgamesh and in it. And, um, those, those two stories like fed me um, as a very young reader. So my, before I even read Tolkien, you know, those, those, those stories really hit me and the illustrations were wonderful for those. I, um, I can't remember who the artist was, but they were so great and kind of Arthur Rackham style pen and ink with, with watercolor washes over the top. Um, but just badass drawings and uh, they really captured my imagination. So stuff like that really still, you know, it, it's, it's a testament to how important it is to expose uh, what kids are exposed to, right. That they're exposed to interesting things. And uh, it doesn't mean you should engineer your kids whole experience, but it does mean you should surround them with things and let them discover what they're interested in within like put quality around them and they will figure it out. Right. <laughs> so good parenting, what I'm saying is good parenting isn't necessarily like structuring a, a, an experience to get for a kid to learn something. Like don't try to teach them things, just surround them with quality materials um, and they will teach themselves. And th that's what I did anyway. I suppose every kid's different. All right. Um, but yeah, so, uh, so yeah, I also did learn how to not eat crayons. I think, um, we would just melt them in our hands until they became cool little blobs and, uh, that you could do that with the old crayons because they had more wax in them. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, weird, weird and wondrous. Um, I'm not sure what I meant by that, but I think you're right. I think, I think I meant that wondrous. I sort of imagined as, as a place perhaps of safety and, and rest and solace, but just, like um, a super cool environment, maybe something that where you could dig out um, treasures, right? Like a gym forest or something and have a, an encounter with the types of weird creatures that live there. Um, that would be wondrous. Although I just said weird. Um, 
<laughs> and I, I think of weird as disturbing and, you know, darker and all that. So yeah, maybe I would have to define those moods a little more if I were going to build a generator off of those, of course. But I think you, I think you got it by osmosis, what I was thinking there. Hi Ray, Goblin Senchman here. So good to hear you back on the mic. I definitely enjoyed your latest episode. I was going to leave you a message about Wolfram's Four Colour Theorem, uh, but it got too long, so I decided to do a blog post instead. So obviously if you Google Goblin Senchman, you'll probably find it. But I thought this idea was quite interesting in terms of possibly mapping relationships because um, basically the colours can represent different intensities in the relationship. Anyway, um, if you're interested, check out the blog. Um, no no stress if it's not, not your thing. Um, okay. Cheers, fella, and thanks again, and uh, good to hear you back in the mic. Cheers. Okay, that's exciting. Um, <laughs> thank you for for taking the idea and running with it. Um, uh, I went over and looked at your blog, and I really enjoyed what you did there. I think it's a really great illustration of how that theorem could be applied um, in a gaming context or used as a tool, right? Uh, um, a contextual tool for designing something. Um, so if you don't know Goblin's Henchman, he has uh, a, a cool blog, and um, it's he's uh, fairly famous for, you know, internet famous, gaming famous, just like I am, right? Uh, famous, haha. Uh, for uh, this hex flower mechanics that, that he's come up with that in, involves um, tables with memory, basically. So instead of just having a, a, a list of a no, uh, numbered items and rolling on it, this has a positional element. The hex flower has a positional element that um, as you roll on the table, you move from one loci to another. And then when you're at a particular place, you're more likely... It, it, it predicates um, which areas you're more likely to move into. It's, you know, you don't jump all the way across the hex to the other side. You kind of uh, are more likely to roll into one of the, one of the hexes around you. And I believe one of his first ones uh, to illustrate the point was uh, called, where does the rot maggot go? <laughs> which <laughs> a rot grub, where does the rot grub go? Which I love those great. It's a great way to illustrate it. And I think it was a good meme, if you will, for, for making that idea catch on. But he's, he's uh, taken a, a blog post to talk about using the four color theorem uh, for uh, character identity and relationship mapping um, in a very cool way. So go have a look at that. I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, Goblin also uh, reminded me that the Halberds and Henchmen podcast is uh, by a guy named Alex Schroeder. I said Ken Sonata in the last, uh, and that is because I am, am experimenting with Mastodon, which is a social media platform that kind of flies under the radar. Uh, and on Mastodon, Alex his handle is Ken Sonata. Now, I don't know if I've just outed his real name unintentionally or whatever, but, uh, or if that's all one word or whatever, but yeah, I, I think of him now sometimes as Ken Sonata because I see his handle more often than I um, hear him say his name on his podcast. Uh, he's fairly infrequent with his podcast these days, but honestly, it's, it's um, every once in a while I'll go back and just listen to him all again because I, I like to hear his thinking process and the kind of cool things he talks about and he does a much better job of being succinct than I do. I think all of his podcasts are in the 10 minutes or less kind of range. And uh, that's a wonderful thing. If you can be that brief and intelligent and articulate, um, I wish I could be. <laughs> Did I just say halberds and henchmen? I meant halberds and helmets. I swear. Uh, next time I will have my coffee before I record, not during and or after. I'm still halfway through my first cup.
and I, it's Monday. So <laughs> I also got a call in from Jason on the nerds RPG variety podcast, um, to, to remind me that, that whole anecdote about rule of thumb. Most people probably know that from the movie boondock saints with William Defoe. And he was reminiscing about the age, um, just like I was about encyclopedias. He was reminiscing about the age when, uh, certain movies, were hard to find and watch. And uh, this is really kind of the VHS cassette era where you, you know, movies, movies had just come to like uh, on demand home video kind of stuff, right? Like before that you had to catch them at the theater or on the TV, whenever they were played and you were not in control of that. Uh, you, all you could do is look at you know, combing through the TV guide. I can remember as a kid combing through the TV guide, looking for monster movies uh, to make sure I, I caught them because there was no other way to just see those things. You couldn't dial them up on the internet. There was no internet. Um, and even this was a, a little bit predates like, uh, you know, the rise of video stores uh, when it was fairly easy to get a lot of this stuff. But even then, it was hard. I, I still remember having favorite video stores that carried more esoteric things. They were also usually the stores that also carried a lot of porn, uh, oddly enough. But, you know, it had a healthy, like, uh, it was a place where people felt comfortable going that wasn't, you know, blockbuster, I guess, maybe is why the connection. But I remember a couple movies that I found in those places that still to this day are movies that I love. One of them is um, Where the Buffalo Roam, which is uh, the Hunter S. Thompson character as done by Bill Murray with Peter Boyle and uh, as Laszlo and uh, can't remember who played Nixon in that. But at any rate, the, it, that was a that's a pretty, as I remember, it's a pretty cool movie and one that I just, you know, in browsing the video store, just came across and thought, huh, and picked it up and watched it. Right. In much the same way. Now you, you'd browse through Amazon prime and, um, they don't have the movie you want to watch. So you kind of dive deep and find some Kung Fu movie or something that you've never heard of before. And you watch it. Uh, I hope you guys do that. Cause I still do that where you just find something and watch it and, you have an experience, right? And uh, yeah, that's a, but I, I did love that movie. I don't know where you can find it these days, but if you watch it, um, tell me about your experience with it. <laughs> Hunter S. Thompson, great, interesting figure. Um, I read, I think after that I read, uh, what's the one, Shark Hunt, Great White Shark Hunt or something like that, which is uh, roughly the same, it's roughly the the time period in which the movie was, uh, on which the movie was based, just following the Nixon campaign and the a Dallas Super Bowl and some other stuff. Um, but of course, with uh, Hunter S. Thompson and Gonza journalism, it was really about how many drugs he could take in a, in a short amount of time and still maintain some form of coherency um, to, uh, like, I, I still remember one of the best chapters in the book was about him. He was sent to cover the Super Bowl supposedly. And, and, um, instead of going to the game, he and, uh, one of his buddies and a maid reenacted the game inside of their uh, hotel room while getting high. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> it's just kind of funny stuff. I, I recently read a couple other, uh, this, I read his book on, um, hell's angels, which was interesting, but not great. I'll have to admit, not, not the greatest read. I thought it would be really good, but, um, yeah, it was, it was him trying to be a little more serious and it didn't really come off. I don't think I, uh, but yeah, um, you've heard enough of me rambling today and that, that went into a weird place. So <laughs> thanks Jason for the call in. Thanks everybody for the call in. I'll put, uh, in the notes, you'll have links to all their shows, uh, and or blogs and or things I mentioned in the show that I could remember. And until next time, uh, this has been Ray and I hope you have a fantastic week.
I have a lot of unemployment jokes, but none of them actually work. <laughs>